Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, before we begin, um, just ask the Lord's help now as we look at his word um, and go to him in prayer. Bow with me once again, please. Father, we come to you now, Lord, grateful that we have your word, but Lord, also knowing that apart from your spirit, enabling our minds, Lord, opening our understanding that we cannot perceive it. And so, God, we, we are grateful for the gift of your spirit, and we ask that you would help us to be discerning, Lord, that as we read the record of your gospel going to the nations, Lord, and of your grafting in of the Gentiles into Christ, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with praise and thanksgiving to you who are merciful, and Lord, to you who are faithful to your promises, even to Abraham, that through him, Lord, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we sit here, Lord, as a testimony to that fulfillment, and may we continue on, uh, Lord, with this commission given to us by Christ. We pray that you help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 15, and as I mentioned a few weeks back, we are planning to go through the the book of Philippians um, as a study in the days to come. And so in talking to to Pastor Ben, we were trying to, as much as possible, kind of work together that we could, um, in our studying, share with one another things that we're learning, things that maybe we found that would be important. And, uh, and so he thought, well, it would be good to go into the book of Acts and get a little bit of context for how the church in Philippi came about and uh, what happened in, in the early stages of this church being planted by Paul. And so we'll start in Acts 15, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, we will carry on in Acts 16, and we'll see the Macedonian call, and as Paul and some of the missionaries go over into Macedonia, and we find a number of churches planted, one of which is the church at Philippi. So, this is a, a pivotal moment in the life, not only of the early church, but really for the, the entire church spanning from this day uh, after Christ had risen and the, the Spirit of God had been sent and, and the gospel begins to go out, um, this moment is extremely crucial in so far as the direction that the church would take. And um, we, of course, in thinking of even the Protestant Reformation, we watched on Thursday night uh, a documentary on the life of Martin Luther and some of the events around that time. And we think of these great councils or these, these great moments in history when the, the church, in a sense, comes to a crossroads and must 
choose which way they are going to go. And uh, a lot of times those very important councils or meetings um, have the ability to alter the course um, for the coming generations. And so we uh, are grateful for men of courage like Luther who stood upon the word of God knowing that it might cost him his life. He might very well be burned at the stake. But maybe we're not so quick to remember sometimes some of these great councils, uh, these times of great debate, no doubt great struggle when the apostles come together and there is this transition from the old covenant to the new, from the Mosaic code to the new covenant in Christ's blood. And they are trying to understand and discern how it is that they are to move forward um, during this time of transition. And so... We are going to kind of just do a quick um, skim through the first part of of, uh, chapter 15 and then um, focus in on the passage that Gerben read for us. Now, first of all, it's obvious to us that there is a dilemma. And uh, the dilemma comes at the beginning of chapter 15 when we find that some men were coming down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so the dilemma that has come to the church is what is necessary for salvation? What must man do to be saved? And the um, apostles have been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if you repent of your sin, you believe the gospel, that you are to be baptized, and that you will be saved. And they give no other instruction to the, to the Gentiles in, in regards to their salvation. And, and there has been great moves of God from Pentecost, the thousands of people responding to Peter's message, to we see Barnabas um, going into uh, various regions of, of Lystra and, and there finding the Greek-speaking Jews responding to the gospel and Paul and Barnabas going out and proclaiming the gospel and God saving many. But they come to this dilemma, what must man do to be saved? And there is the contradictory teaching from some of the brothers, um, we are told, or from, from some men from Judea, and they are trying to revert back to the Mosaic Code, to the covenant sign, specifically of circumcision. And you know that if you read through the New Testament, this is one of those struggles that plagues the early church time and time again. There are very few letters written to the churches that do not address this issue of what do we do with the covenant signs given to Moses and how those are to apply to the New Testament Christians. And I think we probably very much underestimate uh, the struggle in these meetings. We get a little bit of, of uh, a hint. We find that there is much debating. Luke tells us as he records um, this, this account for us. And uh, we find that, that this probably drug on and, and there was no doubt emotion and uh, anger on some people's behalf. And, and it would have been a very intense time for these brothers And there's really two options that they have before them as they come to this question. Either the church would remain tethered to the Mosaic Code, specifically the ceremonial laws and customs and the dietary laws. They would remain attached to that part of Israel's history or else they would have to sever 
uh, themselves from it. And of course, you could imagine for those who have grown up in this Jewish tradition, going to uh, the synagogues on Sabbath, they were circumcised um, as, as young, as infants, and they kept the Mosaic law. They heard the law read through them. This was what it meant to be a child of God. It meant to obey what God had told Moses. And now, all of a sudden, you have this Jewish man um, proclaiming that he is the greater than Moses Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, that all the scriptures are, are pointing to him. As you recall, Jesus would say that you search the scriptures thinking that you, in them you have life, but it is they that point to me. And Jesus proclaims all of that was, that was given to Moses was designed to point you to me. And of course, this is an offensive message because it is their tradition. It is their history, their heritage. It is what their mom and dad taught them and and practiced. And now they are being told that it is of no value in the kingdom of God when it comes to salvation. And so you could just imagine uh, how intense these meetings would have been. Uh, flip for a moment just uh, to Second Corinthians 3, and we find Paul in Second Corinthians 3 talking a bit about this issue of the Old and the New Covenant and how they relate to one another, but also how we're to understand the, the New Covenant um, doing away with aspects of the Old Covenant. And Second Corinthians Three, verse 4, Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. It is the greater reality that the old covenant was pointing to, the covenant signs, the ceremonial sacrifices, the, the holy days that they kept all were coming uh, fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that you've all um, experienced this. Maybe you're in a dark area and, and you have a light and, 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 it's, and maybe the batteries are dying. And I, I find this oftentimes if I actually am able to find a light, usually the batteries are so low that it is just a dim kind of pale glow from the flashlight. But if you're in a dark place, then you're grateful for any light that you have, right? Because it, it helps. Um, it, it enables you to see even if seeing poorly. 
But if you come out of that dark place, maybe a crawl space or something where you were working, um, trying to, to fix something, probably a water line in my case, and uh, you come out of there and you step outside and the sun is shining and it's bright, that little light is useless, isn't it? You're not going to hold on to that light and, and keep shining it where you're walking. Why? Because the greater light, the sun, has overpowered it so much so that it is useless now. There's no need for it. The, the sun is, is, is illuminating everything around you. And in the same way, it is as the coming of Christ... Uh, the, the, the Mosaic Code and, and that, the, the instructions given to the people of Israel were glorious, um, even as, as Paul said. It wasn't that they were without glory. There was glory, and it was designed ultimately to point us to Christ. But at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the law, to go back to the little dim light while the sun is shining is foolishness, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what they were trying to do. The glory of Christ was shining. He has come. The gospel, the the free grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And yet you had men saying, well, actually, we need to hold on to some of those aspects of the Mosaic ceremonial laws and uh, in order to truly be a follower of Christ, in order to truly be a child of God. And while we may not be part of a council that has the potential to shape the rest of church history, um, we are often still faced, uh, I think, with questions in our life. But let us not confuse, and I'll repeat this over and over again, let us not ever confuse what the gospel demands of us, and what the gospel produces in us. That is really what these men had confused. What is required of us to be saved? It is that we repent of our sins, and that we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as a man, who lived a sinless life, who died upon a a, a cross, and on the third day rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And we are to be baptized, not in order that we are saved by water, but as the symbolic sign, the covenant sign of what Christ has done. And if we add anything to that, then we begin to lose the gospel. And a lot of times it can even be good things. If we add our tithing to that, if we add our church attendance to our status before God, if we add our, maybe our social status or our Christian heritage, um, any of these things that are good things and, and many of them that the gospel should produce in us, but we must not confuse them with what is required for salvation. Um, and also I think we need to see that These times of struggle, though they are never fun, uh, when we come to crossroads, as it were, with theological struggles and questions, and there is emotion, and there is debating, and there is um, questions that that, uh, we have to wrestle with, I think a lot of us would say, I don't really look for those those moments uh, of struggle. But at the same time, we need to rest assured that God is sovereign, and that it's through these kinds of struggles that God's kingdom is advancing, that he is sanctifying us, that he is causing us to grow in the knowledge of his grace 
And we will see that by the end of this passage. Though this would have been a very difficult time, I'm sure. Um, Paul and Barnabas there. You have Peter there. You have James there. You have the apostles. And you have these teachers that are teaching contrary. It would have been a very stressful time. I imagine not many of them slept well that night. But how important and how crucial that they go through that in order that the grace of God be clearly uh, understood and presented to the people. So we see the problem, the problem of wanting to add to what it means to be saved. And then we see the solution in, uh, in verse 7. And this is Peter who really initiates, uh, I mean, we don't know all the conversation that happened prior to this, but Luke has recorded for us Peter's response, which seemed to be somewhat of a turning point in this debate, in this council at Jerusalem. And uh, we're told in verse 7 that after there had been much debate, which I am assuming is an understatement, um, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter answers, and he is referencing here the time when he went in in Acts 10, you remember, to the house of Cornelius. And uh, just prior to that, Peter was on the the roof of the house, and he saw the vision of all of these animals coming down in a sheet, and uh, wondering what in the world, and and God tells him, Peter, eat, and he says, I can't eat, I've never put unclean things in my mouth, how can I eat all of these unclean things? Animals, And we're told that there are all kinds of animals that in the Mosaic dietary laws would have been condemned. But Peter, uh, after thinking over this, is confronted by some men from the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who wants him to come to his house. And in in Acts 10.22, we see Peter proclaim the gospel to these Gentiles, and they respond with faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and are baptized And then the Spirit of God, in the exact same way that the Spirit came at Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon the household of Cornelius, and the sign of tongues is evident. And we see Peter referencing this time to this council now. He's saying, listen, when I I proclaimed the word of the gospel to the Gentiles, and they responded in, in faith, God gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And this is the beginning of of Peter's argument as to why they should not be adding anything else to what what is required to be saved. um, And of course, we know, as well as we think about this, you know, even as we've come through studying the, the doctrines of grace um, and God's work in salvation, in many ways the book of Acts are all of those doctrines on full display. We, we see the, the, the gospel coming into town after town after town of people who are separated from God, who are depraved in their sin, and yet because of God's purpose and election, we see him calling people out effectively through the gospel unto salvation and the atoning work of Jesus Christ being effectively applied in these people's lives. And what's shocking here, and Peter brings this 
to the forefront is that God has obviously not only called from the people of Israel, but also from Gentile nations. Non-Jewish nations are responding in faith, faith itself being a gift of God. And so this is evidence that God has indeed chosen to graft in the Gentile nations through the gospel. And not only did they respond in faith, um, Peter says, but they were sealed with the Holy Spirit in verse 8. So this, this word seal, uh, not maybe super common today. We, we sometimes seal envelopes with a sticker or um, maybe a stamp. Or, but of course in that time they would have signet rings and there would be a put of wax poured onto a letter, an important letter by a dignitary perhaps. And they would stamp that wax with their seal and it would, it would indicate um, that, that this is only intended for a specific audience, but there's also a sense of authentication happening, that as that seal goes on to that letter, it is authenticated as coming from the, whoever wore the ring, the king or, or the, the bishop or whoever is wearing the ring. There's also a sense of assurance that this will be delivered, that this will be opened by the intended audience. Because if the seal is broken, of course, they know that uh, someone has tampered with it. And this picture of a seal, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that God has authenticated us as we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His Spirit is, is put into our hearts. We are cleansed by faith. And God has sealed us as his own. There is also the, the uh, implication of assurance. Because we are sealed by his spirit as Gentiles, it means that we're going to be kept by God. We are going to be preserved by God. And I haven't done a lot of canning myself, but I know that when my mom used to can, or now my wife cans, that when you have all of the ingredients into the jar, the jars have been cleaned and they've been purified and the ingredients have gone in and then you put the lid on, that, that there, there is a sign that, that they are sealed and often the lid will make a, a popping sound, right? As, as it, I guess all of the, I don't know how exactly, there was a vacuum is created in there and, and the, the, the lid kind of pops down. And after they go around and they check the lids, you tap on them and if there are any lids that have not popped, then... Uh, then you, you have to basically eat that jar of fruit right away because it's going to be bad. And, and in the same way, there's this idea of preserving. As the Spirit of God, it, we are sealed by Him. We are preserved through God's grace to us. And this is a, a picture that a lot of the New Testament writers pick up. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.21, he says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This seal of God that came not upon the Jews only, but Peter said, I was there. I saw the evidence of the spirit of God the same way that it happened for us. And to the church at Ephesus, he writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so Peter tells the, the men at this council, not only have I proclaimed the gospel to the, the Gentiles, but they have responded in faith. They've been cleansed by faith and the Spirit of God has sealed them. And this is really 
helpful too because a lot of times people will look at the book of Acts and uh, they'll say, okay, when the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost, there are these signs and wonders. The sign of tongues is given. The people are speaking languages that they did not formally know. And people are hearing the, the words of the wonders of God in their own language, um, knowing that these men are not of their nationality. And there's this miraculous sign that is happening. And a lot of people will say, well, then whenever someone is saved, then these same signs should be present, that there should be this this, this sign of the Spirit in the, in the form of tongues. But when you understand what's happening in the early church, that you have this Jewish nation who views themselves as the people of God, and they themselves have the right to be called the people of God. God sends His Spirit upon them at Pentecost, and it's accompanied by this sign of tongues. And so when God grafts in the Gentile community, like Cornelius... And, and Peter is there and he proclaims the gospel. What would have happened if something less had taken place at the Gentiles' home than what Peter experienced at Pentecost? Well, they would have concluded, well, okay, maybe they're part of God's people, but they're kind of second-class citizens, right? Like, obviously, God still favors us because we, uh, we witnessed the great power of the Spirit and they really didn't. And so what happens is God uses this sign as a way of confirming to the apostles in this very crucial uh, transitional time for the church that God has not only sealing the Jews, but he is also sealing the Gentiles in the exact same way. And once that message has been understood and we see it uh, defended in books like Galatians and, and uh, of course, the book of Romans, we could go on and on, that, that there is no distinction. Well, then this gift begins to fade, I would say. It, it really isn't seen uh, in the later writings of Paul in, in so much as we see it in Corinthians, some of the first writings. Because as this grafting in has taken place, as God's seal of His Spirit has been fully demonstrated to the apostles, um, then there is less need for them to be confirmed if you will. And so Peter references that and uh, we find that the, the, you know, we think of the five solas perhaps uh, as something coming out of the Reformation and yet we see the solas very much at work here. Uh, of course, we know that, that uh, truth that is proclaimed in church history finds its roots in the Word of God and Peter points out that in verse 11, but we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We were saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, working through faith alone. And we see these truths beginning to be solidified in the early church as they are wrestling with what to do with these Gentile converts. And then we see further confirmation um, by Paul and Barnabas as well as, uh, as Peter proclaims these things and not only Barnabas, but we see James in um, verse 12. We have Barnabas and Paul relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, you know, on their first, they have just come back from their first missionary journey Paul and Barnabas, uh, 
such an amazing account, but um, Barnabas, hearing word that, that God has begun working mightily among the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews in Acts 11, and he is so excited, he's so encouraged that he goes to Tarsus where Paul is, or Saul at that time, and he says, Saul, you've got to come with me. You've got to come and help teach. Uh, that God is, is, is moving mightily among these Greek-speaking Jews. And so, and so Paul goes with him in Acts 11. And uh, they uh, are then commissioned to go to the church in Jerusalem to take some aid. And shortly after that, when they come back, we find in chapter 11, verse 23, um, that they are also then commissioned to go out and begin preaching the gospel together to the various towns and villages around uh, the region. And so they have just come back from this missionary journey. They have seen miracles. They have seen demons cast out. They have seen sinners repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been stoned for their faith. They have been mocked and driven out of synagogues. And yet they have seen the gospel work mightily. And they are conveying all of these things as well to this council saying, Look, here's what God's doing among the Gentiles. Here, here's how God is working. And, and you think of a verse um, as when Jesus said that, even among Israel, I have not seen such faith. God is mightily working among the Gentiles. And then James confirms Peter's argument that we must stand by grace alone. Uh, he quotes from the scriptures, from the prophet Amos. And he says the prophets agree with this as well. And so now we have the confirmation not only of, of Peter's testimony and Paul and Barnabas' testimony, but we have the scriptures, the prophets, the Old Testament telling us this was going to happen. This was going to take place. And he quotes um, to us from Amos 9.11. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And this is truly incredible. I think a lot of people look at church history and they think that maybe the grafting in of the Gentiles into Christ was plan B. That plan A was that Israel be God's uh, light to the nations, that they be the chosen people. But as God began to see that wasn't going to work, that they were disobedient, he came up with plan B, which was to include some Gentiles as well. But that's not the case, because God has prophesied from the beginning that Gentiles would be brought in, that God has a remnant of mankind, and that includes the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations. And so James brings the scriptures to bear on this uh, counsel and, and points out that, that what Peter has said and what Paul and Barnabas are saying is in accordance with the scriptures, with the prophets. And we see this beautiful harmony of the scriptures. And yes, we talk of, of Old Covenant and New Covenant and Abrahamic Covenants and the Noahic Covenant and, and these different, um, different times in, in, in church history and redemptive history. But at the same time, there is this beautiful harmony that flows from Genesis to Revelation. And you must 
hold on to both of those realities. We don't want to, to cast away the Old Testament as though it is irrelevant to us now because we are in the New Covenant. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Now, there are aspects of the, as we said, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We're here on a Sunday, not a Saturday, because Christ rose on the first day. And, 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 and while there are some things that are, uh, are different, that there are these wonderful themes that run throughout and that tie the scriptures together. In fact, you really can't understand the new covenant, the coming of Christ, apart from the Old Testament. It makes no sense. Um, you won't have any way to understand why we need a Savior and how it is that, a, that, that Christ dying is even able to atone for us anyways. And, and all of these rich gospel themes will be completely missed if you are not familiar with the Old Testament. And James brings this out. He says, listen, this is not, this is not something that is, that is different from what God had stated so many hundreds of years ago. It is actually exactly what God said he was going to do. He was going to call um, a remnant of mankind from all the nations. And so we see then the conclusion and the, the final judgment of this council. And we see in verse 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath, in the synagogues. And so James offers his conclusion to the matter, um, what should be done about this problem, about the, the uh, teachers trying to tell the Gentiles they must take up the customs of the Mosaic Code to be truly saved. He says, no, we will not do that, but we will instruct them um, into... And, and again, he really appeals to the law here, um, which is interesting. He says, yes, they are saved by grace alone, as Peter said, that, that they are saved and cleansed through faith alone, through Christ alone. But as they live out their Christian life, let them abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from things that have been strangled. And so, again, we see this distinction between what the gospel demands and what the gospel produces in the life of the Christian. And some will hear the gospel of grace that is without requirements of keeping the law, and they will take it as a license to live as they want, to, to sin all the more. But that has never been the case of the true gospel, that when someone is truly converted, when they truly understand what Christ has done, and they understand the character of God that's revealed through the law, that they desire to walk in obedience to that, and that they desire to honor Christ, to glorify God in all things, which means obeying His law. And so do you see why it's important that we do not make these laws the requirements of salvation, and yet, as Christians... We should live in a way that's pleasing to God, that is consistent with the essence of God's law. 
And we talk of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And, and, and it would be foolish to say that a Christian, because he's in the New Covenant, can disregard the Ten Commandments. No, because the commandments reflect the character of God. They, 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 they reveal to us His, His character, what He requires of us. And, and it's not that we are to keep these things to save ourselves, but as people who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we keep these things because we love Him, because we want to glorify Him with our lives. And so they send this letter to the churches, instructing them on in how to now live as Christians, as followers of Christ, who have been redeemed freely, not by their works, but they are to um, live as um, those who have been saved out of the world. And of course, the, the various letters of Paul and Peter and James... Um, books of like Hebrews, these all give further instruction to these churches on how this all fleshes out um, in their Christian life. But let us rejoice for God's work in these moments in history. And uh, the, the conclusion and the judgment that was given by the apostles and the missionaries and prophets there, that we will not lay a yoke of burden upon these new converts. And then we see the, the great, um, I guess, the, the response um, of the Christians that as, as the men go out with the letter and they, they give it to them, they're sent off, they go down to Antioch and they deliver the letter. And when the people hear it, we're told they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And um, the other men who gone with them, Judas and Silas, also continue to encourage and strengthen them with many words. And I think there's a, a plug for uh, long sermons there maybe with many words, right? Not, not just a few words, with many words. They are encouraging the brothers. And after they spent some time, they were sent off in peace to the brothers, to those who had sent them. Um, and we see Paul and Barnabas then, as they begin to prepare for their second missionary journey of taking the gospel um, to the nations. So let us not take for granted the fact that we can be called the children of God, the people of God in Christ. And these moments in church history where there was much debating, much controversy, and yet God, preserving the purity of the gospel, saw to it that the message not be changed. And let us Examine ourselves. Are there things we're doing in our lives thinking that it's going to appease God? That it's somehow going to give us favor with God? Or are we trusting solely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That all we bring to the gospel is our sin. That is all we have to bring. And it is a call not to come and add Christ to our already wonderful lives. It is a call to come and die at the foot of the cross. To confess that apart from Christ, I cannot please this God. I cannot walk in obedience to His commands. That I need a Savior. I need someone to substitute my place on the cross. To bear the curse of the law. Because to even break one part of this law is to be under its curse. And so Jesus goes to the cross and there becomes a curse that we might be liberated from the curse of the law. 
And so are you trusting in something you've done, in someone, something someone else has done on your behalf? Um, or are you looking to Christ alone, trusting in His grace alone? And let us not confuse the difference between what the gospel demands and what the gospel produces. It will produce fruit. So if you see someone professing to be a Christian and yet there is no difference in the way they live, the way they talk. You know, how, how are they on the, on the job site when everyone around you is swearing and cursing? Is there a difference? And are you okay with that difference? Because if you are a Christian, the gospel will produce in you fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God working within your heart will begin to bear fruit. And it's not perfect. It's not always overnight as we would like. But there is this continual uh, steady growth this moving into greater and greater degrees of righteousness by the grace of God. So don't divorce saved by grace alone from being filled with the Spirit and producing the fruits of the Spirit by the power of God. And lastly, let us not uh, divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. I hope that you're, you're reading the Old Testament um, at times and that you are you're reminding yourselves of God's faithfulness to the patriarchs and, and His words through the prophets and that we do not forget the rich history of our redemption recorded for us. And let us, most of all, give thanks continually to God who has redeemed us who has set his kindness upon us. And let us go uh, to the Lord in prayer as we close. And we'll have a closing song before our final benediction. And, uh, and we will also then um, partake of the Lord's table together before we go. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, your record of working in history through Men and women, Lord, who were no different than us, other than, Lord, they have experienced great degrees of your power and mercy working in them. And we're thankful that you've preserved the message, Lord, that we be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, as a result of this. And as we prepare now for the Lord's table, that we come with gratefulness and uh, humility. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you were built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless.